Baker Botts LLP provides podcasts for educational purposes only. They are not legal advice and are not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship. This communication may constitute attorney advertising. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Energy Enforcement Insider Podcast, the podcast that provides quick hits on the latest trends and developments in investigations and enforcement matters impacting the energy markets and energy market participants. We're your hosts. I'm Michael Loesch, a partner with Baker Botts. I held former positions at the SEC and the CFTC, and along with me is Brendan Quigley. Brendan. Hey, it's Brendan Quigley. I'm a partner in investigations and litigation practice at Baker Botts. Before joining the firm, I spent seven years as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, including in that office's Securities and Commodities Fraud Task Force. All right. So today we're going to talk about four things. The CFTC's call for whistleblowers in the carbon markets, some recent DOJ insider trading prosecutions, some highlights on recent False Claims Act compliance issues, and then get into the CFTC's regulatory calendar and items of note for energy market participants. So with that, we'll jump right in. On June 20th, the CFTC issued an alert seeking tips related to carbon market misconduct. This alert was issued by the CFTC's whistleblower office, but importantly, that whistleblower office is located within the CFTC's Division of Enforcement. And this alert outlined five types of misconduct that the CFTC is requesting tips on. They're looking to receive information to use in connection with enforcement investigations regarding these five topics. Number one, manipulation and wash trading or other violations of the Commodity Exchange Act with respect to futures contracts related to the carbon markets, of course. Fraud in the underlying spot markets related to ghost credits listed on carbon market registries. Double counting or other fraud related to carbon markets. Fraudulent statements relating to material terms of carbon credits. For example, issues like quality, quantity, additionality, project type, methodology, substantiating emissions claims, environmental benefits, just to name a few. And the final area that was itemized as an area where the CFTC is looking for whistleblower complaints is manipulation of tokenized carbon markets. So this is a crossover between the evolving carbon markets and the crypto markets. Under the whistleblower program that the CFTC runs, individuals can be eligible for significant financial rewards for providing information. It's been a great source for tips and complaints regarding other areas, but this is a relatively new process for seeking those tips by putting out an alert on a specific substantive subject matter. Michael, how how often are uh, these whistleblower alerts? Do they come out frequently? The whistleblower alerts, they're not very common at all. Um, Don't know whether this is a new trend or just a one-off occurrence, but it is significant because it signals that the CFTC is very focused on the carbon markets as an enforcement priority. 
obviously we've heard a lot about CFTC enforcement activity, different areas. I mean, I know you mentioned crypto before. Should the enforcement focus on carbon markets? Did that come as a surprise to you? No, it doesn't. It's been a consistent focus over the last maybe 18 months under this current commission. There been a number of events. Last year in June of 2022, the CFTC held what they call the Voluntary Carbon Markets Convening to discuss issues related to supply and demand for carbon offsets and you know a discussion of the CFTC's potential role in those markets. And around the same time last year, the CFTC issued a request for information on climate-related financial risks, which included questions concerning whether the voluntary carbon markets are susceptible to fraud, manipulation, and greenwashing. And then earlier this year in February, Commissioner Christy Goldsmith-Romero proposed increasing the CFTC's enforcement resources to combat greenwashing and other forms of environmental market fraud. She did that in an industry conference speech, but definitely a signal that there's interest in the highest levels at the commission to start to get into activities related to the carbon markets. What's the basis for CFTC's authority uh, act in the carbon markets. How is it looking at carbon markets? Yeah, it's a great question because the early activities that I just went through, the carbon markets convening, some remarks by the chairman and others seem to suggest that this was an area that they were actively seeking out a role in and trying to put together some sort of jurisdictional case for some level of oversight in these markets. They do have some real authority based on the way the markets have played out. You know, the carbon markets are being used to support the transition to a low carbon economy. And there are a number of market-based initiatives where Carbon credits are purchased and sold either over the counter or on spot exchanges. And based on that, carbon credits are the underlying commodity for certain futures contracts that are listed on CFTC designated contract markets or DCM. The CFTC has enforcement authority and regulatory oversight over futures exchanges and any derivatives trading uh, that involves commodity or carbon market products as the underlier. But the CFTC also has anti-fraud and anti-manipulation enforcement authority over the related spot markets for carbon credits. So they have pretty solid authority for both carbon market derivatives and at least anti-fraud authority over the spot markets for carbon credits. So it's pretty solid, pretty solid jurisdiction. Got it. But importantly... At the same time, the alert came out seeking whistleblower tips. The CFTC also announced the establishment of a new enforcement division task force regarding environmental fraud. And that task force, according to the announcement, is going to address fraud and other misconduct, not only in the regulated derivatives markets involving environmental products, but also in the relevant spot markets, the voluntary carbon credit markets, focusing on misconduct relating to those efforts to address climate change and other environmental risks. So I think you should expect the task force to look at fraud with respect to the purported environmental benefits of certain carbon credits 
as well as disclosure issues related to the representations or misrepresentations of CFTC registered entities regarding the products or strategies that they offer in this area. Just to reiterate, Michael, this enforcement task force, part of its mandate is with respect to carbon credits, but its mandate extends beyond that as well. It's broader than that, 100%. And it's a standard approach that they take, right? There are various other task forces. You know, there was a task force on spoofing, which generated a whole range of cases, which you and I have talked about a lot, Brendan. There's a task force on digital assets, which has raised a number of issues and some significant recent cases. And the establishment of a task force is a meaningful event. It means the limited enforcement resources of the CFTC are being specifically devoted to this area, which inevitably will result in investigations and coming enforcement actions. So they're going to get their own leads, but they're going to get leads from this new request for tips from the whistleblower office. And I think what market participants should expect is a new batch of information requests, market sweeps, and subpoenas targeting the environmental spot and derivatives markets and related market participants. As the DOJ guy on the call, I mean, we've seen it you know, certainly over the last 10 years, a much more uh, robust cooperation between DOJ and CFTC. And you mentioned the spoofing task force, Michael, that was certainly the case there. Some of these will be, I'm sure, referred for, for at least criminal investigation, if not prosecution, not all of them, but some of the ones that the CFTC views as yeah. more serious. And I'm sure there'll be referrals going the other way as well. Yeah, yeah. And based on that history, I think market participants who are dealing with these new investigations have to assume that there's the potential for some sort of criminal involvement along the course of that investigation. So some of the takeaways, some of the lessons, I think, relate to compliance, right? So these developing carbon markets and the related derivatives contracts are now clearly a CFTC priority. And that means market participants have to assume that their activities in those markets are going to be the subject of potential scrutiny. Most importantly, companies need to conduct a tailored risk assessment to ensure they understand and identify the activities of their company in those markets and the regulatory and compliance risks associated with those activities. So, Brendan, what should market participants be thinking about after they conduct a risk assessment? We obviously want to develop compliance policies and procedures around the identified risks. It's very fact-specific, means different things to different companies. We talked about a little bit earlier, there are key areas identified in the whistleblower alert in terms of futures trading manipulation, spot market fraud, and ghost credits, double counting of credits, false or misleading statements regarding carbon credit material terms, and then tokenized carbon market manipulation. And like word manipulation often, but not always, implies at least two parties to a transaction, some type of fake trading or wash trading. So I think certainly counterparty diligence would be part of that too, um, both to kind of protect yourself and given this the CFTC's regulatory enforcement focus here. A hundred percent. And understanding what statements your company uh, is making 
with respect to these products and these markets and making sure you've got a process to ensure that those statements are accurate and not misleading. Think of this area similar to crypto a few years ago, right, where these markets are new and evolving and new products and in some ways, you know, thought of as outside the scope of the regulatory jurisdiction. So, you know, an effort to bring compliance to bear on these issues was often deferred as a cost that was not reasonable to bear. Deferring compliance with respect to the voluntary carbon markets right now is not a reasonable strategy, not a prudent strategy. You've got to look at these activities of your business and and integrate them into your overall compliance program so that you have a good story to tell in order to prevent potential misconduct and mitigate the risk from this new priority area. So I think we've covered this. Should we move on to the next issue, Brendan? Sure. Yeah. At the end of June, the Southern District of New York announced four insider trading cases, charging 10 defendants total. And they do this from time to time where they announce a bunch of insider trading indictments at the same time. And there are a couple of things that were interesting about this. Again, not necessarily energy specific, but certainly issues that hit on energy market participants potentially. Um, but there were four different indictments. And there are a number of fact patterns that tend to be common in the insider trading world without making a lot of these cases, probably very serious charges. But one of the cases involved an insider at a pharmaceutical company tipping off his friend about the results of clinical trials, um, allowing the friend to purchase securities of the pharmaceutical company. Before that announcement was made, it didn't profit handsomely. Once the announcement was made by selling note shares, clinical trials tend to be an area or you know, one of the common areas of insider trading enforcement. Another one <laughs> involving, and again, I've seen this one as a prosecutor, I've seen it in private practice. Another one involved an individual whose, I guess now ex-girlfriend, worked at an investment bank, and this individual accessing her laptop about deals she was working on and passing that information on to his friend. Again, I've seen that fact pattern in many cases involving investment banks, involving law firms. Another case was actually in connection with a SPAC transaction, but what it, that involved violations of an NDA. Um, you know, People had signed an NDA, get confidential deal information. Uh, and tipped their friends about that and traded ahead of that. And then the fourth involved another very common fact pattern. Corporate insider tips his friends ahead of a corporate acquisition. Friends go out and buy the stock. They even tip some of their friends and, again, profit handsomely when they sell the stock. These are all allegations that the government will have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt in trial. But just interesting, they, they fit into, there's probably only eight or 10 fact patterns in insider trading cases that you tend to see again and again, and they managed to charge, you know, four of them here. I think another thing that's interesting on a little more substantive legal level is back in, I think, January or February, they'll put in the show notes, but criminal securities fraud, criminal insider trading prosecutions has kind of had a, a pendulum swing back and forth over the last 10, 15 years. Traditionally, the government brought most of its insider trading prosecutions under Rule 10b-5, which is the workhorse securities fraud, anti-fraud rule passed under the 1934 Act, kind of a general purpose fraud rule that courts have allowed to be used by the government to pursue insider trading based on the theory that the defendant violated a duty to the source of the information, right? There have been some negative case law 
back around 2014 for the government in the Second Circuit, a case called United States v. Newman, that cast some doubt on, t- on the use of 10b-5, and particularly the use of 10b-5 as applied to what you would call downstream tippies, meaning individuals, not the insider themselves, but individuals who received information from the insider or who received information from somebody else who received information from the insider. As a result of that, the Southern District of New York, and obviously an alumnus of that office, but the office that brings many, an outsized number of the criminal insider trading prostitutions, started using more frequently another statute, Title 18 U.S. Code, Section 1348, which was passed as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act back in 2002. Again, a general purpose securities fraud statute modeled on the mail fraud or wire fraud statutes that focuses more not so much on violation of a duty, but on the taking of property, insider trading, test taking of property, taking of confidential information. Uh, Brendan, let me ask you, what's the takeaway from that change? What do you think that means for market participants? I think for market participants, the insider trading policies, it doesn't change. What it changes is it's more difficult for the government to date a case. And we have seen the FCC continue to do this in some insider trading cases on the breach of an insider trading policy, right? 1348 makes it easier in some ways for the government, but it also makes it it harder because you have to show that taking a property. And where I was going was the Supreme Court has now, outside the insider trading context, cabined the definition of property. So in most of these cases that were recently charged, the government brought both 10b5 and 1348 charges they're actually theoretically allowed to do that they can charge alternative theories but i think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out going forward that some of those charges are upheld and other others aren't i think in terms of the insider trading policy i do think it i think that highlights from a compliance perspective again we're still in this pseudo remote work environment in a lot of places enforcing confidential, safeguarding confidential business information, safeguarding material non-public information. I think that is one of the main takeaways of these cases. And just the fact that, again, this shows that for executives, and if you're you're somebody who's in possession of material non-public information, you need to be really careful because this is an area the government's looking at and you don't have to be charged to have an investigation be painful, right? Right. And kind of the chain of information, you know, there's a good chance you'll get asked questions and it'll be painful and distracting and people like us can help you through that. But what's for not to go down that road at all? Prosecutors are looking for different ways to ensure that they can get the result that they want. And yeah, it's definitely important for market participants to be aware and make sure that they take training seriously and continue to focus on risks in this area. Should we move on to False Claims Act? Sure. So uh, the False Claims Act, for those who don't know, you know, that simplification here imposes civil liability for submitting a false claim to the government uh, or causing a false claim to be submitted, right? Um, and the Supreme Court decided two False Claims Act cases this term. I'll talk about one of the two. The second, I don't think it's super relevant for compliance purposes, or at least um, for present purposes. It's more for a procedural decision. <laughs> but the first one was a case, and really there the issue was pharmaceutical company had submitted claims for Medicare reimbursement and Medicaid regu- Medicare contracts and Medicaid regulations required them to submit claims for reimbursement at their usual and customary prices. And long story short, there was a whole debate about what was a usual and customary price. Was that the discounted price? Was that the full price? 
Um, ultimately, the Supreme Court held that you know, what the court you could not defend a False Claims Act claim or defend a False Claims Act case by saying you interpreted an ambiguous regulation in a objectively reasonable manner. And instead, what courts and finders of fact should look at was the defendant's subjective state of mind at the time. And under the False Claims Act, you don't the government does not need to show an intent to defraud. They just need to show either actual knowledge, reckless disregard for the truth of the statement, or deliberate ignorance to the truth of the statement. So uh, this resolved kind of a mini circuit split. The Seventh Circuit held that you could defend a False Claims Act case by showing you made an objectively reasonable interpretation. The Supreme Court said no. The majority view is the right one that you need to look at the, you know, the subjective state of mind to the extent a company can have a subjective state of mind, right, in submitting the claim. Well, I think this has some practical consequences for the energy industry, given all the grant and loan programs that are out there. Keep in mind that false claims that case can be based on both on express representations to the government and implied representations. So any type of representation to the government could conceivably could be a false claim to that case if it was submitted in connection with a payment or seeking money from the government, right? We've seen this in other areas like the PPP a few years ago. I think it is important for companies that they're submitting for a grant or a loan or some type of government funding and they're faced with some ambiguous question or ambiguous interpretation to consider documenting why they believe that regulation, that interpretation, that language should be interpreted in a particular way. And doing that, ideally in a non-privileged fashion. So if there is ever a civil investigative demand about a false claims in that case, you can point to that interpretation and show that we didn't certainly have actual knowledge that the claim that the claim was false. And we weren't deliberately ignorant, nor would we recklessly disregard the truth of the falsity of the claim, because we undertake a good faith analysis of what we're saying. And this is where we landed. That was a reasonable interpretation. So a subjectively reasonable interpretation. And, and it was our interpretation, right? Our actual interpretation, not a post hoc, objectively reasonable interpretation. Yeah, that's a great suggestion there. And providing that kind of contemporaneous backup of the decision-making process at the time, it's often difficult to implement. But if you work that into your regular processes and make it part of your procedures, it can pay good dividends down the line. Yeah. And so we'll see how that plays out. I do expect as more government funding comes out, we will see more False Claims Act investigations in the energy industry where there'll be cases brought remains to be seen. But I do think the False Claims Act tends to follow where the government's money is going. Yeah, 100%. So why don't we move on and uh, get to our final topic and close it up for the day? So a few items on the CFTC's regulatory calendar that are of note. First off, the CFTC has a number of advisory committees. They all have meetings in July. There are a few of them coming up. The Global Markets Advisory Committee meeting is on July 17th. Those are always interesting and useful for market participants to follow. So recommend those to you. But circling back from our initial conversation regarding the voluntary carbon markets, the CFTC will be holding on July 19th, its second voluntary carbon markets convening. So as I mentioned earlier, last year, they launched their first voluntary carbon markets convening. This year, they will hold a second one. And the purpose of the meeting, again, is to discuss 
initiatives for high quality carbon credits, trends in the cash and derivative markets for carbon credits, public sector initiatives related to the carbon markets, and again, to explore perspectives on how the CFTC can work to ensure integrity of carbon market derivatives. So definitely of interest, given the new enforcement focus, hearing comments from the markets and the staff and commissioners potentially on on those issues, I think it would be very useful. Finally, in late June, this CFTC issued a request for comment on the impact of affiliations between certain CFTC registered entities. So they are looking for comments related to a number of questions that they've laid out concerning the impact of exchanges and swap execution facilities and DCOs, clearinghouses, being associated or affiliated with other regulated entities, most specifically market intermediaries and brokers, which are futures commission merchants in CFTC speak. So that's an interesting topic to keep an eye on because it has the potential to result in some new rules related to market structure, which either could restrict market evolution or open up new avenues for exchanges and affiliated entities. So there's a lot going on at the CFTC, and we were excited to have you all with us today in this first episode of the Energy Enforcement Insider. Brendan, any thoughts to take us out? Nope. Appreciate everybody giving us the listen and hope to be back in a few weeks. Please take a look at our show notes. We have links to various supporting information on the topics that we talked about today, as well as links to prior Energy Enforcement Insider webinars from the last two years. We encourage you to take a look at those as well. So thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you for listening to this BakerBots podcast. BakerBots has the experience, knowledge, and people to solve our clients' most significant legal issues. For more information on BakerBots practices, please visit us at bakerbots.com. This presentation is provided by BakerBots LLP for educational and informational purposes only. It is not legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship. Under the rules of certain jurisdictions, This communication may constitute attorney advertising.